Well, typically, I started one place and then ended up in another, mainly because I didn't have enough time to go where I was going to go to begin with. I was going to be in the latter part of the book of Revelation. And it just was going to take more time than I had since I had all of Friday and Saturday to prepare. And usually it takes me a lot longer than that to figure out what I'm going to do. So. It, um, maybe it's peculiar just to me, but I hear words and songs sometimes and I go, I don't like that word. I don't know why they used it. There's a better one. And just like one of the songs we sang this morning, where it says that uh, I'm not defined by my mistakes. And I was sitting there thinking, it's not mistakes. The Bible calls it sin. So I'm not defined by my past sins. To me, would have been a better translation because mistake makes it sound pretty much whitewashed to me. So anyway, that's that's a freedom has nothing to do with the message. You're welcome. <laughs> Is there a mistake of sin? We're going to be in the 90th Psalm. All most of us are. A couple of people are going to be excluded. Bill, you might want to go to the corner right there. If you wanted to say sin, you probably would say sin. And what I want to do is it's not a long psalm, but I want to I want to read the whole psalm and then we'll look at the different verses. The 90th Psalm. And it says it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. So it's the only psalm attributed to Moses. But anyway, let's read it. It says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, your God. You return man to dust and say, Return, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they're like a dream, like grass that is removed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. But we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. We fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servant. Satisfy us in the morning and with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us bad, glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil, that your work be shown to your servant and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. I kept coming back to, to verse 12 because that's where it, what got me into this particular psalm to begin with. Verse 12 says, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Number our days is the same thing as count. And if you look up the word count uh, importance and see how many times we're told to count something, to find out what it's what our life is going to be like, and so forth. You can see how the admonition for us is to count things and keep track of them, especially however it concerns our life in the Lord. I saw something interesting where a, a lady was in the hospital and um, she was close to dying. And this friend went to visit her and um, said something that didn't seem to be very appropriate. But toward the end of her visit, she said, how does it feel knowing that you're going to die? And the lady that was in the hospital thought about it for a second. And then she asked her a question. She says, how does it feel pretending that you're not going to die? And I think a lot of us do that. We pretend that we're not going to die. We pretend because we refuse to count our days. We refuse to see how each day matters because we don't want to think about it as if that's going to change something. And of course it does. Jesus told the parable about the man said, and he says, when you're going to build something, and he said, power, then you decide if you've got enough money to finish it. Otherwise, you're going to get halfway through, and people are going to call you a fool because you didn't count the cost to start with. And he's saying this because he's telling people to count the cost of following him, because there's a cost. And anyone that thinks that there's not is foolish. One of the costs you count are the worldly things that you think you're giving up that make a difference. And you think that because you don't realize that these worldly things are sin that have caused you to be in the condition that you are to begin with. But anyway, he says, count the cost in following me, whether you've got enough of me in you to sustain you because each day matters. This psalm is 
the one, as I said, the only one written by Moses, and it's the oldest psalm in the Bible. But it's not the only piece of poetry that Moses wrote. There are two others. One is the song that the Jews sang after their deliverance from Egypt and the drowning of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. And just to give you a brief refresher on what this song was like, just a few verses of it. Remember, Pharaoh and his army just got drowned in the sea, and Israel's on the other side of the Red Sea watching all of this. It says, then Moses and the people of Israel sang the song, this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his, his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. And he goes on and on. And so many of us remember these little choruses we used to sing, maybe when we first became Christians, about God casting them into the sea. And then the next song, the only other song that's attributed to Moses comes in the book of Deuteronomy. And it's in the 32nd chapter of Deuteronomy. And what's going on here Miriam, Moses' sister, has died. A little later, Aaron, his brother, has died. And they're on the verge of going into the promised land. But Moses is not going to be able to go because he's sinned against God. And when you read what Moses did to sin against God, we look at it and we go, the punishment surely seems awfully harsh. To prevent Moses from going into the promised land after all that God has used him to do. But the problem is we don't realize how desperate sin is and how God regards sin. It's not a small thing. And we've got to get away from this mindset of sin that's little in our sight, doesn't really matter to God that much because it does. If this is the song that Moses sings to the people prior to them going into the promised land, and at the end of this song, Moses goes up to Mount Nebo, where God says you're going to die. But you're not going into the promised land because you didn't regard me as holy at this time where you struck the rock and <clears throat> so forth. But some of the things that he says, he's, he's talking to Israel saying, this is what you're like. You, you've done all these things and it's a wonder God has put up with you at all. He says, give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the earth. 
For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe goodness to our God. The rock, his word is perfect. For all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and right are you. Moses is saying this, knowing he's not going into the promised land. And this has been his desire the whole time. I'm going to lead these people into the promised land. And God says, no, you're not. You're going to take them to the edge, but you're not going to go with it. And he says, the rock is working perfect. For his ways of justice, a God of faithfulness, and without iniquity, just and right is he. And then he accounts the numbers of the sins that Israel has done where they've turned to other gods. Says so you will run unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. But nevertheless, God leads them into the promised land with Joshua, and Moses dies. And many people just think that Psalm 90 is, comes from the background of the death of Moses' siblings and the entrance into Mount Nebo. Death is inescapable. God declared man is descended or is destined to die once and after that the judgment. That's what he says in Hebrew. And because death is inescapable, it's important that we prepare for it. We don't want to hear about it, but it's important that we prepare for it. And Psalm 90 is a reflection of human mortality, the brevity of our lives. It's, it, and it reflects a quiet confidence, the psalm that is, in God who is the steadfast hope of the righteous. Verses one and two again say, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, forever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. When we remember that Moses is the one that wrote the first five books of the Bible, this, these verses take on a, a new meaning. He knew God is the foundation of everything. And that the one who trusts in God has a secure dwelling place in the world. God's our refuge. And before the earth was ever formed, he was from everlasting to everlasting. He didn't suddenly burst on the scene. He's always been. Eternity to eternity. Everlasting to everlasting. When you listen to, to preachers or Christian speakers, it doesn't take very long to find out whether they've got a big God or a little God. You can tell by what they say, what they avoid saying, how they put things together. The God of Scripture is a big God. He's eternal. He created and he sustains all things. Nothing's too difficult for him. 
God is big, so magnify God in your life. And if he seems distant, maybe it's because we never seem to magnify him the way we're supposed to. We think our difficulties are too much for him to overcome, which defies what scripture says. Do we have a big God? Or do we have a little God? So a God that can help us occasionally, but who knows whether he will or he won't, or if he hears or he doesn't hear, is he present or is he not? Do you have a big God or a small God? Verses three through six. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight or as but yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, it fades and withers. In contrast with the stability and eternity of God in the first two verses, these verses show the weakness of man and the brevity of his earthly, earthly life. In contrast to the big God in the first two verses, we see how frail man is and that we should rest in the Lord. Whenever we begin to think how important we are, it'd probably be wise to reflect on our beginning. And our beginning is in Genesis 2, 7, where it says, Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Ecclesiastes 3.20 says this, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust return. Now, doesn't that make you feel important? Doesn't that make you want to look at me, baby? I got it. I don't think so. The scripture doesn't do that. You know, there are places on earth that are seemingly barren, dry. But a night rain will come, and there will cause a covering of grass over the whole area that seemed to be barren. And it springs up in the morning, but it doesn't last because the intense daytime sun scorches everything, and by evening time, this grass that sprang up in the morning is gone. And this psalm is saying our lives are just like that up in the morning and they wither and they're gone. That's how fast it is. The Apostle Peter picks up on verse 4 of this psalm in 2 Peter 3.8 saying, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Peter's point is that God is not slow in bringing about the return of Jesus Christ and the final judgment but he delays his judgment to give people more time to repent of sin and come to faith. Moses' point is not that time passes quickly for God, 
but then it passes quickly to us. All we have to do is look in a mirror and see how fast time has gone. We're surprised by it. We're shocked by it. Verses 7 through 12. Well, we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. Or as the Scottish say, wrong. We bring our years to an end like a sign. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we that we may get a heart of wisdom. You want a heart of wisdom? Count your days. Man's greatest problem is not that he exists for only a short period of time and then is no more. The problem is that he's a sinner and subject to the just wrath of God. It's sin that's the cause of death and misery. Seven and eight again say, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquity before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Not only is Moses contrasting the weakness of man and the shortness of his life against the splendor and the eternality of God, he also shows the root of man's mortality. Death is a judgment for sin. We die because Adam sinned and because we sin ourselves. Sin always leads to death. It leads to the death of dreams. It leads to the death of hopes, of plans, of relationships, health, and eventually even to the ultimate spiritual death it's a separation from God forever. So your dreams shattered, sin leads to it. Your hopes shattered, sin leads to that. Your health a mess, sin leads to that. Sin always leads to death. And if we're really aware of this, then we won't treat sin lightly. We don't pretend that it's no good thing. We'll be quick to repent seek forgiveness. We'll pray like David did in Psalm 1913. Keep back your servant also from willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Translation. Life is short. Live for God. Since there's no, since there is so little. I'm sorry, I find it interesting though that Moses lived to Yeah. But yet he writes here that our days are limited to 70 or 80. That was 
well, anytime you see things like this, we're talking about the norm. There are always exceptions. So when somebody lives to be 90, 95, it's not that it contradicts scripture because scripture is saying the norm is 70, occasionally 80, and then you're going to have even more exceptions, rarer and rarer, higher. So it's not a, uh, this is stone, nobody's going to live past 80. So that's what it amounts to. You've got to read it as, as the way it's intended, not in a literal thing of exactness. Make sense? Yeah, yeah. Just in God that as a writer, at whatever age he was. Well, remember, when he's writing this, Nobody has ever conducted more funeral services than Moses. Okay. Everybody, I think from the age of 20 and above, that left Egypt died in the wilderness. Okay. So that lets you know that lets you know that Joshua was a young man because he's the one that takes Israel into the promised land. And Caleb, because of certain, you know, circumstances where he was one of the only two that gave a good report when the spies went in, God had special dispensation to Caleb. Moses died, Miriam died, Aaron died. Everybody above 20 died in the wilderness. God said, you're not going in because you did not believe, you didn't trust. So everybody that went in had no real first-hand experience of being a slave in Egypt. <clears throat> so the, the, the moral is that since life is so short and so little we can control, why not rest in the arms of the one that controls everything? What else makes sense? Since we know we can't control it. And verse 12 again says, so teach us to number our days that we may have a get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. This is a prayer that God will help us lead a holy life, which is the only path to true wisdom. And notice that he doesn't say, teach us to number our years, but to number our days. How do we make each day count for God, not each year? Because we don't know how long we're going to be here from one day to the next. So how do you make each day count for God? First of all, by recognizing how short life is, which is one of Moses' chief points in the song. And secondly, by living each day for God. One man wrote, we cannot apply our hearts unto wisdom as instructed by Moses, except we number every day as our possible last day. Nobody knows if you're going to be here next week or if I'm going to be here next week. So you need to count each day. And again, remember Jesus' parable about the fool that didn't count the cost. He built bigger barns because he wanted to store up things so he could be at ease. And not have to work anymore. And Jesus called him a fool. He said, This night, you know, the soul's required. You're going to die. You're spending all this time storing up things for a future that you don't have. 
Because then who's going to get what you prepared for yourself? James Montgomery Boyce said, of all the mathematical disciplines, this is the hardest to number our days. We count everything else, but we don't seem to be able to use our days wisely and with wisdom. You count how many days it's going to be to your next vacation. You count how many this and how many that. How many times you've been to the hospital. What's your expectation? But the thing that we need to count the most is what we count the least. Our days. And then we act surprised when it happens. When God tells us all along that the grain wisdom, that's what we need to do. Verses 13 through 17 again, it says, Return, O Lord, how long have you put pity on your servant? Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servant and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. <clears throat> it's helpful, to me at least, That when I read these verses, I remember the circumstances in which they were written. Israel been in the wilderness for close to 40 years at this point. And though they had seen remarkable guidance and protection of the Lord, it had been a very difficult time. Moses said, return. Oh Lord, some translations say, relent, oh Lord, how long? David asked the same question in Psalm 6. He wants to know how long, God, how long are you going to permit the suffering to continue? And he desperately seeks relief from the only one that's able to give it. And Moses is asking the same question here. How long, Lord? Getting ready to won't be long before we're going to the promised land and we're a mess. How long are you, are you going to put up with this? It's a given in scripture that adversity is a part of life. And nowhere did the people, especially in the song, expect to live a life without it. And if we do, we're fools. Rather, here Moses asks for an equal balance a blessing and adversity. He knows that a life without trials would lead to an attitude of self-sufficiency and independence from God. So you want to know why we go through trial? That's a big part of it right there because we'll start thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to. That we're immune. That the reason we're not having trials like everybody else is because we are smarter we are wiser, God loves us more, blah, blah. 
So God says, okay, have a dose of trial. That way you'll see yourself as you are, and it's meant to draw you closer to me. So here, Moses asked God to satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that, may, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Joy is possible, depend on God. That's what you say. Alexander McLaren said, the only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. Read that again. The only thing that will secure lifelong gladness is a heart satisfied with the experience of God's love. That means that nothing will satisfy the human heart ultimately except God. So forget about trying to fill your life with just things. They're going to perish. Don't put your hope in other people. They're going to die. Moses did what God called him to do, and God established his work. Joy is possible, depend on God. If Moses can ask for joy when he'd been in the wilderness for all those years with people dying all around him, shouldn't we? There's a plan, God's plan, work for you. Let me read you something in closing. In the 16th century, Queen Elizabeth I invited an Anglican bishop named Rudd to come and preach at the palace. Rudd was well prepared by the other clergy well regarded by the other clergy, and many expected him to be the next Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Anglican Church. When the current Archbishop extended the invitation for Rudd to come, he advised him, the Queen is now grown weary of the vanities of wit and eloquence, adding that she now preferred sermons that comes home to her heart. On this basis, Bishop Rudd selected Psalm 912. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom as his text and use the surrounding verses to discuss the difficulties of the aging process and the inevitability of physical death. He assumed the queen, now in her old age, would relate to these words. Maybe he related too much. As it turned out, the queen was highly offended by his direct remarks about her aging and death. She made sure that Bishop Rudd was not the next Archbishop of Canterbury. Yet though his career suffered greatly, Rudd gained a reputation as a preacher who said what God gave him to say, whether the queen liked it or not. Ultimately, it's the Lord's approval that makes us successful and no one else's. 
verse 17 again. Let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It seems crazy to say establish our work. What it is, establish the work that you've given us to do so that it's meaningful. We're not going nobody a generation or two generations from now are going to have the foggiest idea who we are. Our name is going to go maybe a lot faster than some of us than that, maybe in a couple of weeks. But we need to understand that God will establish the work that we do for him so that it doesn't fail. Our names might fade, but that doesn't matter. The work we do does, and it will not fade if it's done for the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, help us to count the days, to count the cost, knowing that you're the one that's worthy, knowing that you're the one that has said how long we're going to live. Whatever the years may be, whatever the days may be, Lord, it's you, and they're all in your hand. Help us not be surprised. Help us not think we can delay it or avoid it. But to live each day, Lord, with you as our king, our strength, our hope, and our support. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.